good morning, and uh, good to see you. Glad you're here. And uh, as we like to say, it's just always it's a treat, even on a, even on the daylight savings morning, to see faces that we don't know. And uh, so glad you're here. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jake Patton. It was leading us in worship. Another one of our pastors. But uh, if there's anything that we can do for you while you're here, let us know. But uh, thank you for being here this morning. We are studying the, uh, this first part of the year on the life of David. This is the famous David in the Bible, King David. And so we're going to be mostly in 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. I'm going to read a couple of verses from a, an earlier passage that we looked at just for a connection. But uh, 2 Samuel 9, the whole chapter, you can just follow it there in the bulletin if you don't have, if you don't have a uh, Bible with you. Uh, you, may or, you may or may not have heard this story, but 1912, the Olympics, they were held in Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, there's an athlete, and this is one of these names that you, you may have heard it before. I mean, I, I remembered hearing it, didn't know much about it, but it was just sort of a household name back in the day, Jim Thorpe. And Jim Thorpe was sort of the American athlete hero of the 1912 Olympics. He won, besides being a football hero later on, he, was, uh, he won the decathlon and the pentathlon, both of them, which is like unbelievable attainment. And so when he, was, uh, when he received his medal, the, the king of Sweden, Gustav V, afterward came up to him and said in English, sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world. And reportedly, Jim Thorpe said, thanks, king. It's like the worst understanding of monarchy maybe in the history of the world. And I thought, it, I mean, and Jim Thorpe apparently was, you know, he's an amazing guy, but just if you needed proof that we don't quite know what to do with monarchy, that story should kind of drive it home. Thanks, King. Appreciate that. Uh, I just, I, I'm, I'm telling that story to say that in this passage, you're presented with somebody coming into the presence of a king. Now, we've had that, I mean, there's been monarchy all through this account of David. First of Saul, the king that David, you know, replaces and then David himself. Now, we're coming to the point where he's on the throne in Jerusalem. His kingdom is established. If you read the parts before it, it says that there's rest from war. It's kind of like, it kind of is the salad days, you'd say. It's a sort of like, man, things have really shaken out beautifully. But you get, you get the account of somebody coming into the presence of monarchy, and they really feel and experience that that's an intimidating thing. Now, there's a lot of different directions we could go with this. Let me just say this before I read the passage. Um, There are all these things in the life of David that it would be really fun to have more detail about, about really what were his marriages like, Um, who are these other women that the Bible references, concubines. And, you know, if if you're just even right now as you're hearing that, if you're thinking, wait, that's not good, is it? No, it's not. And you get some little details about his parenting, which was not good, which just led to havoc. Uh, He was an incredible warrior. I mean, if we did once in our lives in hand-to-hand combat what he did just day after day after day after day, we would hijack every conversation for the rest of our lives to tell about it, and we don't get a lot of detail about it. But the Holy Spirit gives what we're about to read a bunch of space in the Bible 
And, you know, chapter divisions are something that we added. The Bible wasn't written with chapter divisions, but it's pretty clear that what we call chapter 9, this is a unit of Scripture that holds together. And the Holy Spirit wanted us to hear this. So let's give it its due, this detail from his life that could have gone unsaid. Let me start off from 1 Samuel, just a quick exchange, and we looked at this several weeks ago. Before David is on the throne, after he was anointed king, but he's not on the throne yet, and he's talking with the son of the man who is, King Saul's son, Jonathan, who is David's close, close, close friend. Saul's son, Jonathan, says this to David, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. If I'm still alive, meaning when you sit on the throne, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now to catch up, Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father... Please open up uh, our hearts to you. Uh, All of this is your word. It's not like we have to sit and try to sift out what's your word and what's 
just extra baggage. It's all your word, but it is, uh, it's hard for us to hear the way we should hear. We come with fatigue, and we come with boredom, and we come with preoccupation, and we come with disappointment, and we're just a big mixed bag, and you know all that. And so we pray that you would help us to hear you, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start off with a corny joke, and I'm just, disclaimer, it's a corny joke, and I know that, all right? So you don't have to tell me afterward. And I don't know who, I first heard this from, but I've heard it multiple times, so it's just, it's out there in the corny joke water supply. As, as it is told, um, there's a man, and uh, we'll just say he's an evangelical Christian, and he's shipwrecked on an island by himself. He's the only survivor of this shipwreck, and so he lives for years on this island completely by himself. No one else is there. And years after being shipwrecked, he's discovered. I don't know if someone sees a signal fire or what, but he's discovered. And so these people come and they rescue him and they come on the island. And, uh, and so he shows them the island and he shows them where he's been living. And they see like the house that he built for himself. And they see this uh, garden, this little place where he grew his own food. And then they see this building that looks like a little bitty chapel. And one of the rescuers says, what is this building? He says, this is where I worship. But then they look behind that, and there's another kind of chapel building behind it. And they say, well, then, what is that building? He says, well, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) The fact that that joke is in the water supply probably should tell us something about ourselves. Uh, Namely, that uh, this thing that we call church membership is something that we, we treat pretty lightly, generally speaking. Um. You know, we looked at this several weeks ago. In fact, you know, I read that, I read chapter 9 from 2 Samuel, but that little part that I read from chapter 20, this exchange between Saul's son Jonathan and David and their best friends, we looked at that about a month ago. And it was interesting to see the effect that 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 had even in our own church family or those who are about to become part of our church family. What I mean is, you know, we're, we're admitting members, new members, to downtown Presbyterian next Sunday. And so uh, the elders have been having a bunch of one-on-one meetings with, uh, with, with some of you. And just, just even this past week, uh, several elders commented on there's several people joining our church next Sunday. And some of them felt very nudged from a month ago when, when we talked about covenant relationships. Uh, There's no command in Scripture to join a local church, but things that Scripture does command to really share life with one another, to be in covenant with one another, to, um, to really commit to a community of people and to submit to its leaders, its elders, and for elders to shepherd a particular group of people. For all that to happen, you have to have something like church membership. And when, and if you're here next Sunday, you're going to hear this, that when members do join and they answer these questions in front of the congregation, we start out by saying that when you do this, you enter into a covenant with God and His church. And I can't tell you what it means to, to me and to the pastors and to the elders that like that would have impacted some of you, some of you for the very first time to say, I'm going to join this local church. That's a huge deal. It's very encouraging. And it's encouraging that it's, it tells me that God is using his word and, and causing you to take something seriously that Christians haven't been great about. That, that it just what comes naturally to us 
in general, and I'd say for Americans specifically, is to take consumerism with us to worship and just kind of ask, like, what have you done for me lately? And even if the services are pretty good, even if the worship service, you know, does it for you, that, wow, if somebody hacks me off, I'm out of here, and I'm going to go to another church. And by the way, this, is, this has been interesting for me to watch as a pastor and, is, and as we're like planting a new church of our own. Many new churches start because a group of people who were in covenant with each other got mad at each other. And call it what you want, a faction or whatever. A faction will leave and start another church, and almost without exception. In fact, I don't know an exception. The best case scenario for a group like that is that they survive. But what typically happens is they start to just eat themselves, and it doesn't make it. That has happened in our own denomination in the upstate. Uh, It's a big deal, as we talked about, to be in covenant with each other. And the reason I'm belaboring that point is to say this passage won't make sense if you don't understand from the outset that when Jonathan was alive, by chapter 9, he's, he's gone. Jonathan and his father, Saul, are dead by the time we come to this passage. But when he was living, David and Jonathan made a covenant with each other. And this is really important. One of the specific terms of that covenant was Jonathan said to David, I, look, I know, I know you're anointed king, and I know that you're going to end up displacing my father. Not if that happens. When that happens, I know we're friends. But, you know, things change. When you sit on that throne, don't kill me. If I'm still around, don't kill me, because that would be the normal cultural expectation. kind of still is. And don't kill off my house. Don't kill off my people. And David covenants that I will not withdraw from you steadfast love. And we talked a few weeks ago about that term in Scripture, steadfast love, unfailing love, chesed. It's a term not only for how people are supposed to commit to each other in the covenant, but for how God commits to us. He's the real gold standard of chesed, steadfast love. So here's what I want to look at this passage. I want to look at, just let's just call it, uh, the summons and the welcome. The summons and the welcome. All right, first off, the summons. Now, again, if you just read this and you kind of make, like, if you read this in a Sunday schooly way, like, David's the good king, and he's a good man, and he does good things. And the way it's going to sound like is he woke up and went, man, life is good, and it's good to be the king. And I'm on the throne, and we're not really having to go to war with anybody. Life is awesome. Who can I be nice to today? That is not his cultural context. I mean, the, the writer, whoever wrote Second Samuel, Samuel's dead by now, so I pretty much say it wasn't Samuel at this point. Listen to how he's belaboring this point. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Verse 2, there was a servant of the house of Saul. Verse 3, the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul? You need to understand the importance of that. The norm in that day would be that if a king and his house, his people, his lineage, replaced another king in his house, 
everyone he could get his hands on from that house would be exterminated. And it actually says earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. It uses the exact same language. The norm is kill off your predecessor's uh, threatening family that he leaves behind. Well, David asked the question, is anyone left from the house of Saul? And they find out about this servant that served Saul and his family. And they get him and they say, same question, is there any direct descendant left of Saul? And he says, well, there's a grandson. There's a, there's a son of Jonathan, and he lives in this town called Lodabar. Now, verse 4, there's not scholarly consensus about where Lodabar is, but the, 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 it seems like it would be something like from here to Asheville, roughly, from, from, Jerusalem, from Lodabar to Jerusalem. Now, picture this. You've got a man, he's crippled. Uh, there are no cars. There are no buses. There are no trains. And he can't walk. Um, his servant, Saul's servant, Zeba, is a pretty affluent man himself. He had 15 sons and all these servants, so he had means himself. So probably he had a horse or some beast of burden, he rode it. But picture that you know how the world works. Kings kill off their predecessor's family. And the successor or the replacement for your grandfather says, I need you to come see me. And he has to ride on horse, camel, whatever for, let's say, 50 miles and think about it. When I was about, um, I don't know, about six years old, one day I wandered off further than I was supposed to and, and was playing down the street at this house that I normally didn't play at, and my mom and dad couldn't find me. And, uh, of course, now that I'm a parent, I know the panic that that would lead you to feel and experience. So finally, they, they found me. And this, this, this is the only time I remember this happening. Mom and dad both came and picked me up in the car. And uh, so I got in the back seat. So it's just the three of us in the car. And dad looked back and said, you're in big trouble. And I, re- I remember this vividly. I said, I'm scared. And dad said, you should be. And, and like, I was just, you know, like six houses away. So picture us driving maybe 100 yards back to, the, back to the house. So we get out, and I went inside the house and threw up. I mean, that's not a fun thing to hear in a sermon, but I, I was just like, it was like a death sentence. I was so scared that I just threw up. And I remember when I got through doing that, I came out, and a fire truck was going by, and everybody was diverted by the fire truck, and I'd thrown up. So I just kind of like eased on out and never got spanked for it. So... It's kind of a weird story if you think about the whole deal. <laughs> I was just glad to beat, beat the rap, as it were. But that was just me, you know, like a spanking that comes and goes. All right, th- this man, he's, he, he seems to be in his 20s. He was five when he became crippled. Someone dropped him when he was little. And he became lame in both his feet. He's now father to son. That's probably about 15 years plus earlier. So he's a, he's a young man in his 20s, and he's just riding to this king, and all he knows is King David wants to see you. And it says when he got there, I want to show you this, verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, you know, in case you missed it, that he's a direct descendant, 
came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And the Hebrew is, is sort of the language of he flung himself at David's feet. And you think about if you were going to prostrate yourself in front of somebody, I mean, it's kind of, you know, that takes some doing even when you've got use of your legs. But for a crippled man to do it, it must have just been just ugly, jarring. And he just says, I'm your servant. And by the way, notice, when Ziba was summoned to David, it doesn't record that he did that. He said, I'm your servant. But Mephibosheth comes and flings himself at David's feet. Now, let's hit the pause button. At this point, there's a real both and in this passage. On the one hand, you've got to be careful uh, I had to watch myself in my own study and even putting a sermon together because it's so easy to turn this account into a parable. And, and I, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about more in a second. But it, it can almost look like a parable of, wow, David is like Jesus. And he's the king. He's the good king. And Mephibosheth is like us as sinners, and he shouldn't welcome us, but he does welcome us. And he lets him sit at his, at his table. That's all true, and we, that's where we're headed. But what I want to be careful of is to say, look, it's, it's not a parable. Mephibosheth is not riding up there going like, wow, you know, on his camel. This is sort of like I'm the, the sinner, and I'm going to the guy that's the Messiah. This is great. You know, it's very real to him. But why is he so unnerved? Because he's coming into the presence of someone that holds all the cards, who's got all the power, who by all accounts should be an enemy, or at least should look on him as an enemy. And, okay, so there's, there's that. But I want to say this. I think it's worth pausing to ask ourselves, when we think about approaching God as king, what does that do to our, in, our insides? Like we talk all the time. And we sing hymns about God being the king. He is identified from Genesis to Revelation as the one and only king. How do we feel about that? That he like calls us into his presence to know him. Is that only comforting? Is that only something that feels reassuring? And maybe not just reassuring. Maybe it actually kind of feels like, of course he wants to know me. Why would he not? Of course he wants to like me and spend time with me. Why would he not? When you know, the scriptures make it very clear that naturally, just things being what they naturally are, we show up as enemies to this king and should be considered such. Or just think about this. Besides the fact that we sin, just think about what we are as fallen human beings. That when God first said to Adam and Eve, you've sinned. You've changed now and the world has changed. You know what he said to Adam? You know, we used to say this more at funerals than we do now. You are dust. And to dust, you're going to return. Isn't that hard to remember? Do you find that hard to remember? That you and I are dust. 
And that's not metaphorical. When we die, if we're not embalmed, if we were just left alone, just, if we just laid in a field, no birds of prey, just a body in a field, we would return to dust. We are that right now. Or think about this. Um, that's very Old Testament. Let me read you something from the New Testament. This is from the book of Romans. This is Paul quoting scriptures. But when, you hear, but when you hear these scriptures, it can sound like, wow, he's describing a crummy group of people. And who he's describing are just human beings. He's just saying, what are people like? He's even including himself. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, doesn't matter. What are people like? Romans 3, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. You ever poisoned anybody because you were mad? You ever poisoned somebody you care about because you said what you felt? That's what it's talking about. That's what we're like. And, you know, I once heard somebody say, you'll know that you're praying the Lord's Prayer on autopilot if you fly, if you fly past our Father who is in heaven and you're not blown away. <laughs> you'll know you're on autopilot if you just kind of fly past the fact that this God who made all the galaxies and the nebula and the black holes and whatever else is out there that we can't even get our minds around, that he has adopted people made of dust. And that we just kind of fly back. Yeah, sure, he's my dad. And I would say in a, in a similar vein, you'll know that you're on autopilot when you hear that God is king and he summons us and we sort of feel like, yeah, I mean, like, I know he wants to know me. It's me. He doesn't need us. And, and, and I made this point a few weeks ago, but I'll say it again. We tend to think, wow, when God really bursts into someone's life, the first thing he's going to make them feel is better. <laughs> the first thing he's going to make them feel is like fuzzy. And typically, when God really bursts into someone's life, the first thing he makes them feel is undone. Like, why would he want me? That has the fingerprints of God on it picture of that in the way that Mephibosheth responds to David. Well, there's the summons, and there's the welcome. And this is the fun part of the story. Um, just a few, few observations. One, notice that I'm not going to read back through it, but there's an interesting thing that the writer did. Almost, now not 100%, but almost every time that David is referred to in the chapter, when he's not talking to Mephibosheth, he's either called King David or the king. But in verses 6 to 8, when he's talking with Mephibosheth, what is he called? It just says David. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like the writer is making him on, on the page more personable, more approachable. And notice that. But what, 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 what is the surprise of the welcome that David is giving to Mephibosheth? One is that he says this, from now on, and man, I'll just tell you as a grown-up, 
and sometimes I feel like a grown-up, sometimes I don't, but when I'm feeling like a tired grown-up, one of the just greatest things anyone can say to, to you is, you don't handle it, I'll handle it. Oh, man. Because there's plenty of people to add things, right? But when someone comes along and says, uh, you don't do that, I'll do it. Or I'll have other people do it. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is to a crippled man. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. In other words, maybe Mephibosheth had access to stuff. Maybe he had access to means. But he had access to means in a dynasty that was dying out and that could be eliminated by David's people. And what David says is, I am locking in that for the rest of your life, others will do for you. And you won't ever have to worry about it. Incredibly reassuring. There is no federal program for caring for the handicapped, for caring for the physically disabled. There is no program. David makes one. And then it says this. And you know what? It, this detail could have been left out. But again, the writer wants to make sure you get the point. Look in verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all uh, that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And just in case you missed it, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And here's the question I want to ask you. Why did David do all this? Because if you turn him into a cartoon figure, if you turn him into Sunday school David, then it's just going to seem like, because he's nice. Because <laughs> he's a nice man being nice. Like, this is a warrior culture. David was extremely familiar with the actual physical sensation of running a spe- spear through someone and the spear pulling you forward as the man becomes a corpse. He's a warrior. Why is he treating the grandson of the man who kept trying to kill him like this? And here's the thing. There's sort of two, there's two levels to this answer. There's an occasion for him doing it, but then there's the real source. Now, what's the occasion? The occasion is, I'm speaking like I'm David. My best friend was your dad. And again, it's funny as I'm getting a little bit older to like meet the teenage and sometimes even college-age children of my friends, you know, and to see my friends' face in their faces. So, like, the initial answer is, your dad was my best friend. And on top of that, I made a covenant that I would show your dad's people chesed, steadfast love. So, I'm, I'm going to do this. But, If you stop there, you miss the real point. Because David's promise was, I'm not going to kill off your people. If he had just left Mephibosheth alone for the rest of his life, sent him a letter that said, wish you well, he would have kept the letter of the agreement. 
of the covenant. Verse 3 is super important. Look at what it says. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the chesed, the kindness of God to him? Now, I want to I be brief, but I want to give this its due. David was a sinner. <laughs> and we're going to see that more. David, why do you have more than one wife? And besides your wives, why do you have concubines? Why, why do you haul off and do things impulsively rather than just trust God? Why, why are you such an absentee parent? Why don't you deal with these things in your own household that are going to end up blowing up in your face and affecting Israel? He's a messed up person, just like we're messed up. But what had he experienced for real? Not like theoretical, but for real. And this is what Jake preached on last week. God made a covenant with David. He didn't just say, David, I like you. He didn't just say, David, I love you. He made a covenant with David, and it was surprising. And it's interesting that right on the heels of this surprising outpouring of love and loyalty from God to David, that David turns and does it to somebody else, that is really instructive. Let me go back to this thing about us being in covenant relationships. There's two big covenant relationships that you would find in this room. One is church membership. I'm not saying that's everybody, but that's quite a few people I'm looking at. Church membership, and another would be marriage. And here's the question that I want to put b- before us. When is the last time that the surprising covenant love of God led you to surprise someone that you're in covenant with. And, yeah, I mean, and that has made me ask myself, well, what would a, not just faithful, basic, but like what would a surprising level of covenant commitment look like in a local church or in a marriage? And I'm going to sum them both up with one word apiece. In a local church, it would have to be Forgiveness. And in marriage, it would be cherishing. I mean, again, this has touched, let's go to church membership first. This has touched some of your lives very directly. That what comes naturally to us is if you make me mad, you could be pastor, you could be uh, church staff, you could be person in my community group, whatever. It could be someone who's a member of downtown Prez that I didn't know that well, but we had to do business with each other and we got crossways. That you made me mad. And so what I'm going to do is what comes naturally. And what comes naturally is I'm going to take my marbles and go somewhere else. That is the norm. That's what comes naturally to us. You know what is surprising is to be able to look at somebody that hurts you. Because I'm not trying to downplay, we do hurt each other. But to look at somebody that hurts you and to say, I am not going to let go of this. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to keep walking alongside you. Because that's what God keeps doing with me. 
They may appreciate it. They may not. I'll tell you this. That kind of surprising covenant loyalty does change people. And I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but later in 2 Samuel, somebody, Ziba lies to David. He says to David, you know what? David, one of your sons is trying to stage this coup and run you off, and Mephibosheth has sided with one of your sons, and it's a, it's a lie. Then later, when you hear from Mephibosheth, after David has run out of Jerusalem, he's running from his son, he's trying to stage a coup, trying to kill him. When you catch up with Mephibosheth in the story, he hasn't cut his hair. He hasn't bathed. Why? Because he was so distraught that David was gone. What does that tell you? Like, it impacted his life that David showed him surprising love. Like, it changed his life. Can we do that with one another? All men will know that you're my disciples by your what? Programs? By your love for one another. What about marriage? Honestly, and I'm saying this as a married man who gets it wrong all the time. If, if someone who knew about marriage but didn't know what is said in a marriage ceremony, if they watched our lives and we asked them, now guess, what did these two people promise to each other? They might think that we stood up in front of witnesses and said, I so-and-so take you, you, know, take you so-and-so to help me handle logistics. I so-and-so take you so-and-so to help me keep the trains running on time. Or they might actually think, I so-and-so take you so-and-so to expose everything that is wrong with you and critique you. I take you to be the number one person in your life who tells you what a disappointment you are. And when men and women covenant with each other in marriage, you want me to tell you what verb we do actually in the vows, commit to do? To cherish. Like to make you really not just hear, but like actually at some level experience and feel that you are wonderful and that there is no other relationship in my life like you. You are to be treasured. We covenant to do that. And I'll tell you, when you live with another sinner who has punched your buttons and you've punched theirs back, the only way you're going to be able to do that to a surprising degree is if God's, if I may put it this way, God's spousal love has surprised you that just day after day after day, when he should be hacked off at me, that he comes to me and says that he treasures me. And he actually says that in the Bible. (laughs) That the crazy people are his treasured possession. Have you experienced that? And I'll just say this. The number one portal for understanding that is the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. That this is God saying in language bigger than the cosmos, I actually love you and will not let you go. I actually, you will not so much do for me, I will do for you. 
and you'll come to my table and you'll live with me and you, and you won't be like one of my sons. You'll be one of my sons. That's the love of God. It takes something that big to surprise a fellow church member or a spouse with love. Uh, this is a good segue for what we're about to do. I don't want to take away from whatever Jake is going to say, but this table is the son of Yahweh who is himself Yahweh saying to people who look at porn, who use his name as their own little exclamation point, who break covenant, who get so mad who like their stuff more than they like people. This is the son of Yahweh sent by Yahweh saying, I want you to sit at my table. I will not break covenant with you. I've taken the curse for all your covenant breaking. Come be at my table. You won't do for me. I will do for you. Work doesn't say that. Jesus says that. Busyness doesn't say that. Jesus says that. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are the great covenant keeper. You are the great source and wielder of steadfast love. We thank you for the ultimate way you showed that, the life, the death, the resurrection of your precious Son. Would you transform us? Would you transform how we treat covenant relationships? Father, for the person who's here this morning who's never really entered into a covenant with you, who doesn't know what it is to hear you say, I will take care of you. I will cleanse you. I will rule you. I will come behind you. I will redeem you. Would you turn his or her heart to you, even right now, to trust you? For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.